what would you do if things started to go bad in our church? It may seem like kind of a pessimistic question. You know, we focus usually on what we want to happen in our church, the good growth and community and fellowship. But if you've been a Christian for very long, or even if you've just been around Christians or churches, you know that it happens. Things go bad in churches. There's conflict and fights. And my question is, what would you do? How would you respond in that situation? It may not seem like it at first, but that's actually the question that Jude is addressing in the book of Jude that we'll be looking at this morning. What his listeners need to remember in order to know how to respond to that sort of situation. So turn with you, if you will, to the book of Jude. It's the second to last book in the Bible. So it's small, but if you look for Revelation and just go to the front of Revelation, you'll find it there. One uh, theologian has said about Jude that it is maybe the most neglected book in the New Testament. Uh, It's a strange book and can feel intimidating. He doesn't argue or think in the way that other New Testament writers argue or think. Paul builds arguments slowly over time on top of itself. John takes one idea and then circles around it over and over again. But Jude takes lots of different vivid pictures and lays them over the top of each other to give you a clear and vivid picture of what he's trying to tell you, which is powerful but strange and unusual to us. He, with laying over images and metaphor and stories in 25 verses, he directly refers to the Old Testament at least seven times. And then there are the two elephants in the room, the other things that he quotes, the other stories. We don't know much about Jude. All he says about himself is what you see there at the beginning, that he's a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. The name Jude, it's actually the same name as Judas. But as time went on, uh, Christians decided it was more helpful to refer to this Jude as Jude instead of Judas to make clear this is not the disciple who betrayed Jesus. This is a different guy. Jude, Judas is one of the most popular names uh, of the of early Jewish, uh, excuse me, of Jews in the in the first century, as was James, his brother that he mentions. But there's only one James, who would be famous enough to be referred to, and people know, oh, that's the James you're talking about in the early church, and that's James, the brother of Jesus, who led the church in Jerusalem. In other words, even though Jude simply calls himself a servant of Jesus. He is one of our Lord's physical brothers. So he's mentioned only a other couple places in Scripture. Uh, In Matthew 13 and Mark 6, uh, when Matthew and Mark are recounting how Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, the crowd says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? He's mentioned again, though not by name, when Jesus' brothers go and try and stop him from preaching because they think that he's crazy. And yet the Lord, in his grace, saved this man. He was given grace to realize that his older brother was also God. He speaks about Jesus in ways that normal Christians speak about it. But listen, 
our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Over and over again, he calls him our Lord, Jesus Christ. And out of his love for his Lord, who was his brother, and his love and concern for fellow Christians, he writes this letter. Let's read it now. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.
So why did Jude write this letter? He tells us at the beginning, which is very helpful. He says that originally he wanted to write to them about their common salvation. What that's shorthand for is simply the gospel. He wanted to write to them even though they already believe the gospel. He wanted to write to them about the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, became a man and lived a perfect life and died the death that sinners deserved so that anyone who trusts in him could be brought into everlasting life, fellowship with God the Father. That's what he really, really wanted to write to them and talk about, even though they already knew it. They held it in common. That's what he wanted to speak about. He wanted to meditate on and celebrate their common salvation. But something forced him to write about something different. You see that the necessary change. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Why is it necessary? Verse 4, because certain people have crept in unnoticed who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he had to change what he was writing about in order to urge them to guard the gospel from being corrupted and confused. The gospel in their lives is under threat, and so Jude leaps to action to to address it. But before we go through how he's addressing it, I just want you to notice Jude's attitude towards this. Most of the letter is he's speaking very strongly, but we should believe him when he says that he preferred to speak about something else. Jude doesn't shy away from speaking directly about this controversy and threat, but he only does it out of necessity. He's not seeking out a fight wherever he can find one. Christians should address controversy out of necessity for the sake of the health of the church, for clarity on the gospel, but we do not sink out controversy when there's no need for controversy. So let me ask you, what excites you most? When you say you love doctrine or theology, do you really mean that you actually love fighting about those things? Do you like to check online to see what's the latest conflict that's blowing up in a church on the other side of the world? Just because you want to see the trains crash? Friends, there's some people who, who live as though their calling is to trade in alarm and outrage about what's happening uh, among Christians. If you're drawn to blogs or YouTube channels that seem to trade in outrage, ask yourself, what do they seem to love the most? Do they seem to love the gospel? Or do they seem to love fighting about the gospel? Would you be happy if they spent more time talking about the gospel instead of about whatever the latest controversy is? So what is it that Jude then now wants to communicate in order to address the fact that these kinds of people have crept into the church and require this kind of confrontation? There's three things that we could summarize the book with. I'm going to give you two of them now and make you wait for the third one. The first two are both things that he wants them to remember. So you can look there in verse 5. He says, now I want to remind you. In verse 17, he says, you must remember. So the two, two things he wants them to remember. One, he wants them to recognize the pattern of the ungodly. The pattern of the ungodly. And secondly, he wants them to remember the predictions of the ungodly. The predictions of the ungodly. These are the two things that he wants them to remember. And then his third, third point is 
what, how he wants them to respond. We'll get to that later. Most of his letters are these, are these reminders. So going back to the first one, recognize the pattern of the ungodly. He wants them to recognize this pattern because it'll help them respond correctly to what the threat is. So he reminds them of three biblical events in verses five through seven. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. These are three examples of Jesus executing judgment on people. He starts by talking about Jesus saving the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt when they were captive. You can read about that at the beginning of the book of Exodus. He doesn't go on to talk about this much, but it's amazing, isn't it, that Jude speaks about his own brother in the flesh as having saved Israel out of Egypt thousands of years before. I suspect if he had been able to write what he wanted to write about, he would have talked about that a little bit more, about how his brother had existed for all time and had been active in saving God's people because he himself was God. I think that's probably what he would have spent more of his time talking about. So he gives us a little hint in here. But why does he start with this illustration? Because even though this people had been brought safe out of Egypt, then Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. I think he begins with this with a reminder. Jesus saves. Jesus judges. And living among God's people is not a guarantee of being safe. Just like those who didn't believe, who were in the people of, of Israel being brought out of Egypt, were safe, felt safe for a little bit, but then were judged. These people who have crept unnoticed into the church have been noticed by Jesus. They will not escape his judgment. Jesus can save a people out of anywhere, but also nowhere can protect you from his judgment. These people creep in, and then he compares them, excuse me, he then compares them to fallen angels, who he says didn't stay in their proper God-given role, but chased after unnatural desires. Uh, This is probably referring to Genesis 6, angels desiring human women, but it's not just about that, is it? They go beyond their position of authority, is what he says. They're not content with the role that God has given them. And then he tells He mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, You can read about them in Genesis 19, two of maybe the most infamous cities in the Bible. Uh, Cities that were destroyed for their wickedness. They were already wicked, and then they pursued unnatural desires and chased after them with the angels who had come to visit Lot, Abraham's nephew who is living in the city. So you see that we, we have angels who are chasing after women. We have men who are chasing after angels. Both stories are of people who indulged in unnatural desires and who were judged for it, but also set as an example for how God will respond to wickedness. You see that in verse 7, especially Sodom and Gomorrah are an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
And he says these ungodly people who have crept in are like this. He says in like manner. They devile the flesh. They reject authority like the angels who presume to leave their God-ordained place to do something else. These people presume that they have the authority to do whatever they want to do. Ironically, he says, they themselves blaspheme or revile or despise angels uh, because of their pride and desires. Thinking about the context of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels exercising God's judgment on the city, it's a little bit ironic that these ungodly people are mocking and reviling angels. They're a little bit like uh, the boy who realizes a dog is chained up and then he's very brave and starts making fun of the dog and throwing rocks at the dog. The dog was loose, it would be a different story. When Jude says that these people depend on their dreams in verse 8, he's referring to this as a means of justifying their behaviors and desires. They rely on their dreams to allow them to defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. This is part of their pride and their presumption. By relying on their dreams of giving them authority to do what they want, they undermine God's actual authority and his word. But remember that these are people who have crept unnoticed in the church. So they're probably not saying, don't follow God, follow me. They're probably saying, God has told me it's okay for us to pursue these unnatural desires. God has told me because of me, because of how I am, I, I can't stay where, where he's put me. I have to reject this kind of authority. Friends, beware of using your own sense of God's will to justify disobeying what he's already clearly told you. There are ungodly people who have argued that God endorses big sins, uh, like the ones that, he, that Jude refers to in this. But have you ever been tempted to justify ignoring wise counsel just because you feel like you want to do something else? Or worse, have you justified ignoring something that God clearly says in Scripture because you feel like God really can't want that from me because that's too hard? Or have you ever held so tightly onto your vision of what you think your life should be, your career should look like, how your family should be behaving, maybe what you think your church should be? Have you ever held so tightly to a vision of those things that you justify acting in worldly ways to accomplish that goal? Because God has given me this vision. Anything is excused in order to get there. Friends, that is the pattern of the ungodly. Jude is saying, we have seen this before, and we know where it leads. These people are presuming to have power and authority. They revile and blaspheme angels. They chase after their own sinful desires. These seem like extreme examples. And Jude and the Holy Spirit are not giving us extreme examples in order to make us feel better. As though, well, I don't, I don't speak badly about angels, so I'm not that bad. Uh... I don't pursue the kind of unnatural desires that we see happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, so I'm not that wicked. Uh, No, those things are certainly wicked, but the point is the deeper symptom. There's a pervasive issue that that's just showing. Chasing after unnatural sexual desires is a clear example of the pattern of the ungodly. Deciding what you want is what matters, and what God wants doesn't. That pattern or type or model is what all fleshly desires lead to. 
loving things that will destroy you instead of loving what is right and good. These are warnings, and pa- warnings of where the pattern of the ungodly will lead to. No matter how small the pattern is right now, it's inevitable. This is what the pattern will eventually look like. The, he gives us these examples in vivid color so that we can see the same color scheme in more muted tones in our own lives and be warned accordingly. Verse 9, he, he interrupts what he's saying to make a sort of side comment. You know, he's mentioned that they blaspheme the glorious ones, and then he goes into this story about the archangel Michael. Michael is one of the two angels whose names we actually know from the Bible. Michael and Gabriel. Gabriel is known as a messenger. He brings good news to people, uh, like Mary, when he announces to her that she's pregnant. Michael is only presented twice, both times in Daniel, Daniel 10 and Daniel 12, as a mighty warrior angel contending against demonic forces. But this story about Michael, fighting with Satan over Moses' body, is not in Daniel. In fact, it's not in the Bible at all. It's from a book that's called The Assumption of Moses. It's not a biblical book, but it's part of Jewish writings that grew up out of the Old Testament, explaining questions, answering things, and painting, painting vivid pictures to teach biblical truth much in the same way that Jude is teaching biblical truth through vivid pictures. Many of the books like this are full of prophecies or statements that are kind of presented as prophecies, but they're interpretation of things that you can actually find in the Bible somewhere else. Or it's a story like this one that's, that's holding up a character trait or value that is commendable. So he uses this story not to argue that, excuse me, not to argue that this really happened and that this, is a, this should be included in what we understand to be inspired truth about what happened to Moses' body, but because he wants to highlight the quality of Michael and compare it against the quality of these ungodly. It's like if I were to refer to the loyalty of Samwise Gamgee or the patience of Yoda, you would know better than to think that I think that the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars are part of, should be part of the Bible. I can use those fictional characters and events to illustrate a character trait that is true, even when it's presented in a fictional character or event. That's what Jude is doing here. Michael is obviously not a fictional character, but the events are fictional. But what it shows is Michael's humility. The mightiest archangel fighting against Satan is humble not to go beyond his place. He doesn't blaspheme or rebuke Satan, but he says, the Lord rebuke you. Because Michael is humble and recognizes that's the Lord's job. It's not my job. Christian, do you ever ask yourself if something is outside of the responsibility that the Lord has given you, outside of your authority? Rebuking Satan is a good thing that needs to happen. But it wasn't Michael's job. He hadn't been authorized to do it. What job are you tempted to take from the Lord? Do you feel like you need to punish people for their sin? 
Do you feel like you need to make sure that no one anywhere is ever thinking wrongly? Maybe that's not your job. Maybe that's something that only the Lord can do. And that's why he hasn't authorized you to do it. Brothers and sisters, be careful not to presume and to take authority that the Lord hasn't given you. Jude then continues with his description of the ungodly in verse 10. He says that they blaspheme and they revile everything that they do not understand. Not just angels, everything they don't understand. It's worth remembering that just because you don't understand something doesn't make it worthless. Teenagers or university students, I think this is particularly prevalent to you because you're at an age when this is most tempting. It's tempting to all of us, but I think it's particularly tempting to you. Your peers will tell you that the wisdom and counsel of older people is stupid, usually because they don't understand. Jesus says that throwing wisdom to a fool is like throwing pearls before pigs. Pigs reject pearls just because they think they're not good for eating. But that doesn't say anything bad about pearls. It actually condemns the pigs for not understanding the value of the pearls. Be careful not to revile good counsel and wisdom. And be especially careful not to revile the commands and counsels of God. The foolish reject good counsel. The ungodly are despising the things of God as not worth their time because they don't understand them. If you don't understand why God commands certain ways of living of his people, or you don't see the point of why you should be honest in this situation, recognize that God is wiser than you. He probably understands something about why that command is important that you don't understand right now. Unlike the ungodly, we should be wise in recognizing the limitations of what we understand. So the godly revile the things they don't understand, but then, the, excuse me, the ungodly revile the things they don't understand, and they are also destroyed by all that they, unlike unreasoning animals, do understand instinctively. The picture is like of, animal, of these people as animals who can't think and reason, and so destroy themselves just following their instincts. Have you, have you ever noticed throughout the city of Dubai, especially next to alleyways where there's shops or restaurants, there's these little black boxes that have a tube going through them. They're just on the side of the alleyway. They never get in your way. They don't stand out. Those are rat traps. And the reason why they work is because they rely on the unreasoning instincts of rats. If a rat were to walk down the middle of an alleyway, he would escape unharmed. But because rats instinctively understand the edge of the wall and tunnels, that's where I want to be. They're destroyed daily in this city because of those traps that use their instincts. That's what these ungodly are like. They can't help but be drawn to the things that will destroy them. They're like flies that once they catch sight of that blue light, can't stay away from the zapper. So Jude naturally responds, woe to them. They can't help themselves. They give themselves over to these things that will just end up destroying them. Things will go badly for the ungodly because their pattern is so predictable. He then points out 
where we've seen this pattern over and over and over again. They follow in the way of Cain, the first murderer who murdered his own brother simply because Abel made a more pleasing offering to God. You can read about that in Genesis 4. They abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. Balaam is famous for being hired to curse the people of Israel. You can read about that in Numbers 22 to 24. On the way there, his own donkey, an unreasoning animal, rebukes him for going because he can see the angel of destruction that's in the way. But Balaam persists. He still goes. He tries three times to curse the Lord's people, and every time the Lord takes his words in his mouth and twists them into blessing. And yet still, Balaam persists. In Numbers 31, we're told that Balaam, even after that, just for the sake of receiving some pay, advises the people of Midian to give their daughters into marriage to the Israelites in order to lead the Israelites into idolatry. And then he says, God himself will bring his judgment on the Israelites. This man persisted just for the sake of gain. And then, he's, and then he compares them to, the, he says they are destroyed in Korah's rebellion, which Hannah read for us earlier. Korah and the others who were discontent in their station, even though they had been made priests over the entire people, because there was someone a little bit higher than them, they were discontent with the place that God had put them in. And so they rebelled, and they brought judgment on themselves. The pattern is so predictable. When ungodly people chase after their sinful desires, they will destroy themselves. The African theologian Augustine said, sin is the punishment for sin. This is exactly what he was talking about. You may have heard that God will work all, all things for the good of those who love them. I can promise you also that sin will work all things for the evil of those who love it. But these people aren't just dangerous to themselves. They're dangerous to the church. You see in verse 12, he says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Uh, love feasts were what the early churches seemed to have called meals that they would gather and celebrate together. You, it, probably they observed the Lord's Supper in the middle of that meal, uh, just like Jesus and the disciples did at the Last Supper when they were celebrating Passover. Passover. So they'd have a larger meal, and then inside that, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. But they were meals as pictures of fellowship and community. We see the importance of that at the beginning of Galatians when Peter stops eating with Gentile believers when uh, people from the party of the circumcision comes and Paul rebukes him for it, says he's denying the gospel because he's not eating together with other Christians. But these people have slipped into these love feasts. They look like they're part of the fellowship. They look like they belong, but they're hidden reefs. A reef in the ocean that you cannot see is the one that is most dangerous to your ship because you don't know to avoid it. And these people look like they're part of the fellowship. So you can't see or expect the kind of damage that they're going to cause. And just like hidden reefs are most likely to cause the most damage to your ship, these ungodly who have crept in are the most likely to cause the most amount of damage and heartache in the life of a church. These people are not there to build up the body, though they look like it. They're only there to feed themselves. They look like they might be clouds bringing rain, but they have no nourishment for other people. They only take. 
Jude stitches uh, images from all four corners of creation uh, to describe the ungodly then in verses 12 through 13. Let's listen to them again. He says, They are waterless clouds slept, swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Stitch those pictures together. You have a picture of people who provide nothing but only consume. People who are lifeless and who are lost and who can lead others astray as well. There, and these are all examples, you, you might notice, of nature not doing what God has ordained for it to do. Stepping outside of its God-ordained place, presuming to have authority for something else. They're outside, these people are outside of God's ordained means and directions. And they will suffer for it. This is a heavy, heavy passage. Jude speaks very clearly about these people and their ungodliness. Do you shy away from, from diagnosing ungodliness? Are you fearful of drawing attention to it? Downplaying sin helps nobody. In fact, Jude would like to remind you that when sin is unnoticed and hidden, that is when it's most deadly. So Jude wants us to recognize the pattern of the ungodly so that we can remember that as good as sin might look in any particular situation, on the surface, we know where it will lead. It will always lead to destruction and God's condemnation. But that's not all that Jude wants us to remember about the ungodly. He also wants us to remember, point two, that the ungodly have been predicted. So remember the prediction of the ungodly. So verses 14 through 19, he brings up two predictions about them. Uh, so far, you may have noticed that when Jude was using examples, he talked about Jesus exercising judgment. But then when he speaks about the ungodly, he, so far, he's only talked about the destruction that they bring on themselves. But now he'll remind them that also Jesus' judgment is coming for them too. He reminds us that Jesus and Jesus' people are not surprised by this sort of thing. We knew that this would happen. So he says, first, if you look further down, verses 17 to 18, he reminds us that the apostles told us that, that this was going to happen. He's quoting from 2 Peter from, and recognizing this man as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, his brother, warned us that these kinds of people would come. So don't be surprised that they've finally come. And then he brings, he, before that, he mentions this prophecy from Enoch, the seventh from Adam, that they would do, be around, that they would do terrible, ungodly things. He uses the word ungodly so many times in those few verses. Uh, but he brings that up to say that they will be judged for it. The Lord is coming. We should not be surprised that there are ungodly people even within the church. We've been told to expect it. So don't be discouraged when you see it. God's plan is not being ruined by the presence of the ungodly. It is painful and it is hard to experience the effects of the ungodly. But God will win. The ungodly will pay for what they do in terrible ways because our Lord is just. 
he will deliver us and he will rebuke them. Jesus saves. Jesus judges. It's a warning and it's also a comfort. We know what will happen. We don't have to be alarmed or shocked in the moment. Uh, Before we keep going, let me just stop to address the strange question here. He quotes Enoch, but Enoch is not a book of the Bible. He mentions this as prophecy, but we don't have any recorded speech from Enoch at all. All we're told about him in Genesis is that the Lord took him up into heaven rather than him having to die. Again, just like the story about Michael and Satan, he's quoting something that's not biblical. He's quoting from the book of First Enoch, which was written in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, uh, and everyone knew that. So no one, Jewish or Christian, has ever thought that this belonged in Scripture. Uh, it was always clear that it was something else. It wasn't written by Enoch, but it was written as though it had been as a kind of apocalyptic commentary on Scripture and the things that God's people should expect. So it's written in a similar style to the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. Uh, <clears throat> and in many ways, it, it uses illustrations to try and demonstrate what the writers wanted believers to think about what the Bible teaches. So you could think of it as sort of a, a much more exciting version of a commentary, uh, trying to help you understand what Scripture has taught in vivid imagery and through story. <clears throat> so there's a couple of ways that you could think about this. Christians have thought that that uh, Jude believed that this was a true prophecy of Enoch that's been preserved over the generations. And when First Enoch was being written, it was included in that as a valid prophecy that Enoch had made long ago. Lots of Christians think that. <clears throat> what I think is that he's quoting it as a helpful summary of what the Bible teaches. He's summarizing what the Old Testament has predicted will happen. Uh, so, for example, just like I quoted Augustine before, I'll quote someone else later, uh, not because I think they're scriptural, but because I think they helpfully summarize what the Bible is teaching about a particular thing. They sum up clearly a biblical truth. And Enoch's line actually uses language from the Old Testament. The Lord coming with tens of thousands of his holy ones is essentially the same phrase that shows up in Deuteronomy 32. It also shows up in Zechariah 14. Judgment for harsh words is a recurring theme of the book of Proverbs. And the promise that God will judge the wicked for their ungodliness is everywhere. So I think that this is a clear summary of what they should understand the entire Old Testament to be predicting about ungodly people. They exist, and the Lord will judge them. But who were these ungodly? Or rather, how can we spot them? How does their defiling of the flesh and their rejecting of God's authority actually uh, show itself in their everyday life? Jude only now, finally, in verse 16, tells us this is what these people are doing. That this is the manifestation of the things that he's been talking about that are going on in their hearts. Verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. What an anticlimactic list. 
what a frightening list. Grumbling, stirring up discontentment, even the radical and gross behaviors of the angels and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah are summarized just into following their own sinful desires. They boast loudly. They show favoritism to gain advantage for themselves. Friends, receive the warning. Ungodliness does not always look big. This is why they're hidden reefs, why they've crept in unnoticed. Their behavior is sin that we are often so easily tempted to think of as sin that's acceptable, that you can put up with, that maybe you can safely even indulge in every now and then. But be warned. These are all signs of following your own will and desire and not following God's will. And notice also, while they're leading people astray, they're not condemned for preaching something that's false. No, no, it's their lives that are presenting the corrupting view of the grace of God. So just like you can teach and model things to people without being a preacher, you can be a false teacher without being a false preacher. What does the example that you live set to others about what it means to be a believer? What does your life teach people about what you think the gospel really means and how you should live your life? Does it tell the truth? Jude says that these people are condemned because they do not believe in God, but they have never said that they don't believe in God. They are creeping in unnoticed in the middle of the church. As Paul says in the book of Titus, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their actions. What they do shows that they don't actually believe that he exists or really has any authority over them. They're free to do whatever they want. That's what their actions say, no matter what their words were telling people. And then in verse 19, he finally gets down to the nub of the manor. He connects the dots for them. This is the reason why there are divisions in their church. If the church had been on guard and prepared and watching out for these sort of things, remembering the things that they once fully knew, they would have realized that this is what was going on. But because they didn't treat ungodliness with the seriousness that it deserved, they are now experiencing division in the church. They're experiencing it why? Because the church has worldly people in it, people devoid of the Holy Spirit, people who don't know God. And this is one reason why we, we take very seriously bringing people into the fellowship of a church. Great harm can come from letting someone who's not born again enter and act like a Christian. Great harm can come to them if they remain self-deceived but also clearly great harm can come to the church when people who follow their own fleshly desires start stirring up discontentment in the church, grumbling against authority that God has put over them, seeking to maneuver to be perceived of as maybe a little bit more important or better in the church. Those things are toxic to the life of a community of believers. So what do you do? 
How, how, after we recognize the pattern of the ungodly, after we remember that they've predicted, so we shouldn't be surprised that they've come, what do we do? How do you deal with it? We should do what Jude has been appeal, said he wants to appeal for the saints to do ever since verse 3. Contend for the faith. But how do we do that? That's our third point. Respond in mercy. So in verses 20 and 21, Jude, who is speaking so strongly against the ungodly, look what he calls the believers. Beloved. Those who are loved. Loved not just by Jude, but loved by God the Father. Look back at the beginning. Verse 1 to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This is the context in which the godly are to respond out of. Respond to ungodliness. How? Verse 20, by building yourself up in your most holy faith. The ungodly lack the Holy Spirit, but you have a holy faith, and you pray in the Holy Spirit. The ungodly are relying on themselves to give them what they want most. The godly are praying in the Holy Spirit. They're relying on God to give them what God most wants. Uh, Tom Schreiner says about this, Jude recognized that his readers would not continue to be devoted to the faith if they concentrated only on resisting the opponents, as important as that was. The most important thing was for them to continue to grow in holiness and godliness themselves. When you spend your life reacting to wrong teaching, it's very easy to find yourself far away from the truth yourself. For every moment that you want to spend correcting someone else, fighting against something that's wrong, spend 10 or 20 meditating on the goodness of the gospel. You fight best against the effects of the ungodly by loving Jesus more. If you are tempted to respond with harsh words or with pride, how don't you see that's just the pattern of the ungodly all over again? That's not how we are meant to respond. And we do this because we know that we will receive the mercy of Jesus. So in the context of Jesus' mercy, we should show mercy. There's many times in this sermon where I've wanted to qualify or back away from what Jude is saying to make it maybe a little bit more about the sin and not the sinner, because I'm fearful uh, that we'll hear that and we will respond in harsh ways to people who aren't believers or to people who we perceive as divisive in the church. But that's because I was thinking about us responding in fleshly ways. But we don't respond by shunning or by making someone feeling pain. We respond with mercy because we've been shown mercy. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Our concern should not be to punish. Our concern should be to show mercy to those who are affected by the ungodly. That includes Christians who are led astray or discouraged, and it includes those who are not yet Christians. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's not clear in real life who are the ungodly and who are those who are being affected by the ungodly. But brothers and sisters, it's not your job to punish the ungodly. 
your job is not even to debate them or to fight them, but to show mercy to them and to those who are being misled by them. I think that's why Jude says show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He's referring back to the Old Testament Levitical law uh, where if someone was unclean, their clothes would become unclean. And until the clothes were treated, those clothes could spread the uncleanness. So a shirt that had been touched by an unclean person lying in the corner, if someone else picked it up not knowing, they'd become unclean just by the shirt, even though they weren't anywhere near the person. You can read somewhat about those procedures in chapters 11 to 15 of Leviticus. Responding to uncleanness sometimes included washing the clothes. Sometimes it meant burning the clothes to make sure the uncleanness didn't spread. Ungodliness is like tar. It sticks to everything. It spreads so easily, especially when you're not watching, when you're not being careful. So show mercy but do it with fear. Not fear of the person, but fear of how easily it is to catch their sin, to start thinking in ungodly ways. Don't assume that just because you have good, attention, good intentions, you can't be led astray by someone else's sinfulness. I mean, consider it. How easily do you fall into grumbling or being discontent just when you hear someone else complain? Or how quickly can you start justifying treating people differently according to what they can do for you because that's just how it works in this city? How soon after listening to someone else justifying their own sin can you start to use those same arguments to justify your own sin? Or how soon even hearing someone else struggle against sin can that sin start to sound just a little appealing to you? Friends, show mercy with fear. How do we show mercy? The simplest and clearest way is sharing the good news of how they can be delivered from this sinful pattern. We tell them about our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, who, yes, uh, judges people, but he also loves to show mercy to people. He loves to take those who were once ungodly and make them godly people who don't chase after their own sinful desires, but chase after the things of God. How do you show mercy to the people around you? Preach the gospel to them. Encourage them to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of their sins. Encourage them to live a life in fellowship with God who loves those who turn to him. We show mercy by warning people, both in the church and outside of the church, of the danger that their sin presents and by snatching them as from the fire. Even when we put unrepentant sinners out of fellowship in a church, that's not condemnation. That's mercy. We're being merciful and trying to warn them if they do not turn from their sinful ways, judgment is coming. It's a warning of the greater judgment that Jesus will bring if they don't turn away from that, and that is most merciful to warn someone of. Mercy can sometimes feel rough or unloving to the person who's on the receiving end of it. If my daughter, who's one and a half, is at the edge of a pool or at the top of a staircase and about to go off the edge and I grab her quickly to pull her away from it, she will cry. 
She may even be a little hurt that I did that to her. But I know, even if she's offended by me, that I was not being unkind. I was saving her from something that she didn't even see the danger of. Mercy sometimes looks like being slow with people and patient over time, asking them to turn away. But sometimes it may be pulling them away from the ledge when they're about to destroy themselves. We show mercy to people by pulling them away from sin in whatever way we can. And people will not be grateful to you always. If someone thinks that they're just drinking a cup of water, but you know it's poison, and you knock it out of their hands, at least they will think that you are very rude. This instruction is, is a hard task. And the warning is a fearful thing to be warned of. How do you show mercy without being entangled in their sin? How do you stay on guard against the ungodly while still extending the promise of mercy and salvation? How do you keep yourself in God's love in the best of circumstances, let alone when there's conflict in the church, which is supposed to be an expression of God's own fellowship with us? Well, Jude helps us know, even as he tells us to do those things, to keep ourselves in God's love, to persevere, he concludes by reminding us what he told us at the beginning. We are able to keep ourselves in God's love only because he is able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to present us blameless. It is difficult now, but there will be great joy then. Remember how Jude addressed his readers at the start, those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We are able to persevere because he preserves us. We keep ourselves in his love. We are supposed to work to keep ourselves in his love. But we know that the efforts to do that will succeed, not because we think that we can earn ourselves into his love, but because he already loves us and he keeps us there. Nothing can prevent that from happening, us being presented on the last day blameless, still kept in the love of God, because God is our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, friends, we know the result of the ungodly. We know how to recognize their pattern. We know that they will, they will come. And we know that we, who have been shown great mercy in Christ, and who will be shown yet still greater mercy, should respond with mercy because we are headed for great joy through him. There's no way to respond other than how Jude finishes. To this great God be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of warnings like this that we know to look out for the effects of the ungodly. Lord, thank you for the warning of the judgment that will come that we might, some of us might yet turn away and ask for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you will address wrongs. Your judgment is certain and coming. And we praise you that just as certain as your judgment is your mercy, 
We praise you for the mercy that you show towards those who've trusted in your son. We pray that you would help us to live lives that reflect that mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.